0: What's
1: your favorite way to learn?
0: I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our
1: host, Rachel Wadham. There are a lot of different languages in the world, and each one is used to express its own meaning. As humans, we learn language in a lot of different ways, and use it to communicate in just as many different ways. While there are some forms of language that may prevent us from communicating, there are other forms that are more universal, like mathematical language. Math is a system of communication that expresses ideas through showing relationships, quantities, and processes. Each of these relationships, quantities, and processes is expressed with symbolic and graphical language. To understand math, we have to understand the symbols that convey a lot of information in a very compact form. Even in the earliest years, we learn how symbols like the plus sign or the minus sign work. We then work up to symbols for multiplication or division. Along with learning these symbols, we also learn the concepts that go with them. Much like we know that C-A-T represents the animal, we know that a plus sign tells us to put the two numbers together. Being mathematically literate is in part dependent upon us understanding these symbols and how they represent the concepts we are engaging with. Teachers agree that first it is important for children to understand the concept behind the symbol before they learn what the symbol means. So beginning mathematical literacy starts with children playing with mathematical concepts like addition and subtraction, using blocks or other objects add a great tactile element to showing what happens when we add and subtract. Once these concepts are understood, we can then move into the more abstract realm by showing the same process with numbers and symbols. So as with many literacy concepts, learning math really does start with play, as we work with and manipulate things around us to experience the concrete expressions of math. So then we can move on to really understanding those abstract symbols. Building an understanding of mathematical concepts leads to a building of mathematical vocabulary, which then leads to a full understanding of the symbolic language of math. So here at Rachel's World, we hope you will find ways to get your children excited about this unique language of math.
0: How curious are you about the world around us? Perhaps you're mostly interested in learning about other people. What's life like for them? How do they accomplish what they do? Or maybe your inquisitive nature is about plants, animals, minerals, dinosaurs, medicine, language. Our guest today on Worlds Awaiting, Elizabeth McLeod, has a deeply curious nature, which she says has propelled her to write nonfiction books for kids of all ages on any number of subjects. Even though she never took a writing course during her four years at the University of Toronto, she loves to write and is successful doing it. McLeod's background is primarily in science, and her training has come in handy for researching and writing children's information books, including Why Do Horses Have Manes? and Snapshots, People and Places in History. Here's Rachel and
1: Elizabeth McLeod. We're on the phone today with Elizabeth McLeod. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Elizabeth, I am so excited today to introduce you to our listening audience. You write lots of wonderful things and quite extensively in, in a lot of different areas. So to start out, maybe introduce to us a little bit about the scope of your writing. what it is it what is it that you write?
2: I write mostly nonfiction uh, for kids of all ages. So I have uh, series and other books that I've written for first readers. So those would be, you know, kids around ages six and seven, maybe eight, who are just learning how to read and getting comfortable with it. I write a lot of books for uh, middle grades, so eight to tw- uh, ages eight to twelve, and then I also write some older books, uh, more for early teens as well. And as I said. Um, pretty much all nonfiction. I've written cookbooks, I've written craft books, I've written picture books. Um, I've been lucky enough to write on a lot of different subjects.
1: So why do you pick nonfiction? What is it about nonfiction that seems to just stand out for you as something that you feel like you want to write?
2: I'm very curious. Some people might say nosy. And um, I write a lot of biographies, so I'm very curious about why people do what they do. Um, I wonder how they find the courage or strength to overcome obstacles. And I, I find, too, I'm, I'm writing a lot about women. I think for a long time, women were missing from from history, from science, that sort of thing. And people want to know about these women women um, that have done amazing things, and, and, you know, so so few of them we've actually heard about. And I think it's really important to tell women's stories and to empower kids with that kind of knowledge. And it seems to me that diversity is becoming more and more important, especially in kids' books. So I, I like to write about that and, and show kids many different viewpoints. So when you approach your writing, particularly
1: from that standpoint, where you're approaching a diverse point of view or you're prov- approaching a point of view that may not have been told before, how do you do it? Where, where do you start?
2: Well, I think writing for me is like solving a puzzle. So how do I put together these words to make something great um, that kids are going to want to read and that will also give them lots of information? And when, when you say, you know, talk about the process, like many authors, I think research is my favorite part of the writing process. We're always trying to find that amazing fact that will fascinate kids. So we look, you know, one more website, one more book, and, and I guess as well, I, I really like the, the research phase because at that point, you can imagine how perfect the final text is going to be and how fabulous you're going to write at this time, and then reality sets in, you know, when you actually get down to the writing. But for a while, everything's perfect.
1: That- that is just delightful. I appreciate that sense of the research part just makes it perfect and then then you get down to the realities of the writing exactly. <laughs> that that is such an evocative image. I, I truly appreciate that. But how do you do that? I mean, how do you reconcile those two things, particularly as you're writing? because I'm sure particularly with the research, you have to pull out a lot of things that you aren't going to include in the books or anecdotes or other things that you think are wonderful that you're not going to include. So how do you balance that? How do you make it, how do you make it work?
2: Well, um, I, I talk to kids. I think that's really important. Um, I do a lot of school presentations and that sort of thing, and uh, it's it's really important to listen to what interests them. I listen to how they talk. Um, I listen to about what books they like, just things like that. Um, and then, of course, when you're writing nonfiction, it's also really important that the books are accurate. So I actually get experts to review the text, and it's it's wonderful. As sometimes they give me, you know, extra stories that I can then use. T- um, you know, to illustrate a point or, or whatever. And I also, can I put in a plug for libraries? I use my library a lot. Librarians are great. And uh, sometimes, you know, there's a fact I cannot find like a birth date or a death date for somebody. And they can just be so helpful and refuse to give up, which is wonderful, until they help me. If they can't find it, you know, they'll give me ideas of other people to contact or they'll, they'll take my name and phone number and get back to me. they They're really amazing.
1: That's wonderful to see how much effort you put into this to make these accurate for our young readers, because particularly for them, as they're learning and growing, they need to have that true sense of accuracy of of anything that they're engaging with in this world, whether it's a biography or a cookbook or anything like that. So as you write, how do you make sure that you're trying to be as accurate as possible other than having other people look at it? Or do you fact check yourself? How do you... do you approach that process?
2: I, I definitely fact check myself. Um, when you start doing a lot of research, and you've probably found this too, I think many people have, you, you know, especially if you're working on the web, you find facts and they come up again and again, often in a very similar format. And you start to feel like, Okay, this fact isn't something that the that the writer has, the researcher has um, has determined themselves have found. They've they've just, um, and I don't mean it just copied, you know, from somewhere else. But but maybe they haven't checked it. So one of the things you know I tell kids when they're doing their projects, they really need to find a fact. If they find a fact, they really need to verify it and find it in at least two or three other places. And I also I use books a lot still in my research because. Um, You know, books are usually written by an expert or someone who has some expertise in an area, and so the facts are much more likely to be correct. Um, the The internet is great for checking you know up to up to the minute things, really things that that have just happened but i I try to use a combination of books and and uh, websites for anything that i 'm doing, and as much as I can, I, I do try to visit some of the sites of, of um, where things have happened you know, that have taken place in my books, or I do try to talk to experts.
1: Liz, that is so wonderful for you to express because I think it's important for kids to know that this is not just about copying it from the Internet, essentially. It's about really thinking about it and really diving into it. You've you really shown us in this conversation how complex this process is. So as we close up our conversation today, maybe tell us what is one of the challenges that you face? What is one of the biggest challenges you face in this complex process? And what are some of the strategies you use to overcome those challenges?
2: Well, I, I think um, maybe the biggest challenge is just making sure that everything is clear and that it makes sense to kids. And it's so wonderful to have an editor, um, you know, who reads it and makes sure that it makes sense to that editor. And, and many other people actually usually read a manuscript out of publishers, you know, the marketing people, everybody, just to, to make sure that, that it's working so they may all have comments. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience that you've read something, an explanation of, of uh, you know, a process or an activity, and you get to the end of it and you think, that doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm not a stupid person but I'm not following this. And I I think sometimes people get away with fudging things for for adults, and you really can't with kids. They want to know why something's working. And if they don't understand your explanation, they will keep asking questions. So... Again, I, I come back to the experts and, and their involvement. I've written books about Albert Einstein and Marie Curie, and as you can imagine, getting the physics correct in both books is pretty difficult. Um, and it took, a, a, I know in both cases, it takes a few sort of back and forths with the experts until I'm satisfied that the kids will understand this explanation and the experts are satisfied that I haven't simplified it too much which is something that you often try to do for kids I haven't simplified it too much to make it incorrect so it's it's really tricky and again I I think it comes down to that that whole team approach that you know asking for help when you need it.
1: Liz, thank you so much. This has been an insightful and very intriguing conversation. I appreciate you so much opening the world of the process of writing nonfiction for young people to our listeners today. I think when they crack open one of your books or one of your colleagues' books, they'll have a new appreciation for all of the work that went into making it. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Rachel. I've really enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Elizabeth McLeod author of children's information books, talking about the great efforts that go into writing a book and the many people who are involved in making the finished product. Up next, Rachel visits with Dr. Richard West, professor in the BYU Instructional Psychology and Technology Department. He talks about design thinking, a process of creating a product or service that begins with trying to understand people you want to serve, walking in their shoes, so to speak, so that the final product will meet their needs. Dr. Richard West researches how to teach group creativity and design thinking and is co-chair of the BYU Creativity, Innovation, and Design Group. In his personal life, he's an avid reader across multiple genres with a compelling desire to use literature to help his children become awesome adults. Here's Rachel with Dr. Richard West.
1: We're in studio with Rick today. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. I am so excited to talk to you today about this wonderful concept that I'm familiar with, but I don't think that a lot of my listeners are going to be familiar with. And I think it is such an engaging, wonderful concept that I'm excited for you to introduce it to them. So it's called design thinking. So to start out, tell us what is design thinking?
3: Well, design thinking is a process that was popularized by the Stanford D School and then also IDEO, which is a design firm in that kind of uh, Palo Alto area, and it's a process for designing new products or services or ideas, and so it's a creative process. But um, there's lots of processes that we use for in in the in the business world to design new things, and some of them take the aspect of you uh, set your objective first, and then you you build it completely, a hundred percent to that objective and then launch a perfect product. And design thinking takes a much more messier kind of approach, but a much more user-centric approach, which is what I really like about it. So in the design thinking process, you start off not by deciding what you're gonna build or or do, but first by just trying to understand the people that you wanna serve. If if it's a customer base or or an audience of some sort, and you just wanna understand them. And they talk about feeling their pain, like trying to understand why they struggle with this. And, and, um, and it involves, for example, and it involves usually trying to live their experience with them. And one example that IDEO had is they were trying to figure out why people in hospitals were so depressed. Of course, they're sick. And that's part of it. But what can we do to help people in hospitals not be so depressed? And so they said, well, let's go sit and lay down in their hospital beds and go through a day of being a hospital patient so we can understand their pain and feel what they're feeling. And they realized after spending a whole day laying in a hospital bed that hospitals are very depressing places, and the ceilings are very boring. And if you have nothing to look at all day long, you, bec- you really do become very depressed. And so they created a solution that was to um, create better rooms that were very more pleasant and welcoming to, to patients. So that's just one example of... Of feeling someone's pain and then having it build into a solution, um, you know. Another example that they have is kids not wanting to get, um, I think it was an MR MRI done, where you go into the big scary machines and it feels very claustrophobic, and and so you know they try to understand. Well, why do and they talk to kids. Why do you why do you not want to get your well It's scary and it's claustrophobic. And and after understanding the kids, um, they built F, uh, MRI machines that were spaceships. And told the kids, you're now going into a spaceship. Isn't this so cool and exciting? And all of a sudden, it was really cool because they played off of the kids' imaginations now. And so the first step in the design thinking process is to have deep empathy and understanding for why they feel the way they do. Then once you understand them, then you identify what the problem is. And it may not have been what you thought originally. Maybe you thought you were going to do A, but after understanding their pain, you decide B. And you decide that's what you're going to focus on. So then, then you, you figure out the problem. Then you ideate solutions for the problem and uh, come up with lots of different ideas. And then you pick one of those ideas and start prototyping. And the, the characteristic of design thinking is that you go for low-fidelity prototypes, paper, cardboard, clay, um, you know, things that you can just easily throw in front of someone and say, tell me what you think about this. And you're not investing a lot of money into the prototype. That way you can fail early and fail often because failure is part of this creative process. So, so you do lots of low fidelity pre- prototypes and get better and better until finally you have something that is sustainable and built for the long term. And because you follow this design thinking process, usually the solutions you come up with are really targeted to users. Users you feel like this speaks to me. You understand me with this product or this service. And so it's, it's really user centered that way and, and I like that approach of it.
1: I love this sense of you know, starting with the user and that kind of empathetic approach and then moving through a process that allows you to fail. I know that you work with university students and teach them this process. Why do you think it's important for students to maybe learn the steps of this process and maybe have an experience going through it? What, what is it that they take out of learning how to ideate and do thinking in this kind of pattern?
3: When you talk to employers, the skill that they want most from students that they're hiring is the ability to be creative, collaborative, and you know all that kind of thing. And that's what you learn in the design thinking process. It's usually a, a collaborative exercise. It's not an individual one. And it's creative. And so it's teaching people these skills of how to work in a team to understand perhaps someone that they don't understand very well. And that translates into so many different careers and services and products and different kinds of disciplines. And so it's really good career preparation. And as I think about universities, I think we're in an age now where information is less important than it used to be, and innovation and collaborative innovation is more important than it ever has been. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we think kids are going to go to the university to memorize a textbook because they could do that on their own. They don't need me to lecture to them out of a textbook. But what they do need from a university is the ability to work with other people from other disciplines, work together, solve problems, and learn how to deal with other kinds of people and and how to do authentic things like design projects. That's the kind of thing they're not going to get probably anywhere else. So, I mean, the first step of design thinking is empathy, to truly understand, which is not always natural for a lot of people. And so, But in order to do design thinking, you have to do the empathy. And that will then translate into so many other aspects of their lives if they know how to empathize and to truly listen and seek to understand. That will help them in so many other aspects of their lives. So I think it's a really important skill for them to learn um, that will really translate for them.
1: I think having these kinds of programs and and structures to help kids learn that is just amazing and they're becoming more and more visible and more and more open to students. So, I think in most cases a parent will just have to, you know, go into their community or in their schools and start asking some questions and they they should be able to find something of this nature to connect their their kids with if they if they really find this to be an amazing concept because I certainly do. I f- I find this pattern of thinking to be so immensely powerful. I mean, ha- have you seen like outcomes? What what are some of the feedback you get when you take students or kids through this process? What what do they see at the end that's different than they didn't see at the beginning?
3: Typically it's a. I find it to be a more effective process for designing. So, I mean, they, they come up with a better project at the end. But then they do come out um, with uh, greater appreciation of other disciplines, other ways of thinking, um, greater empathy, um, greater um, collaboration skills. Um, at least the way that we do it at the university, a lot of times we're doing it with uh, interdisciplinary kinds of groups. So I think that, that, that those are some of the outcomes that, that can come out of that.
1: And I think those outcomes are much needed, right? We're, we need those kinds of basic skills and yeah. fundamentally part of, of what we want to do in employment. Like you say, employers want these kinds of skills. So, so if parents can't find you know, these wonderful programs, which I think they will be able to, if you just look, they're out there. But if they can't, what is maybe one tip or one suggestion you might want to give to parents who might want to start helping their kids think like a design thinker might?
3: Well, I would definitely – there's lots of maker spaces at local libraries. Uh, Taking the kids there where they can tinker and explore I think is a phenomenal thing. Um, Another thing that I think is really helpful is getting kids to think empathetically about other people, that it's important to understand diversity and other people with diverse perspectives. And one of the things that research has shown can really help younger children with that is – well, all of us, even adults they find as well – is reading. Um, really good and really good books can really help with developing empathy, particularly books with complex characters that aren 't your typical kind of shallow characters but really have some depth to them that helps and really sucks you into understanding their world and The interesting thing is is I think children 's literature does this almost better than adult literature, um, particularly the Newberry books. Um, I think they do such a fantastic job of exploring diverse kinds of ch- of children and experiences. And I, as an adult, love to read them. And there are several books that I think are just really fantastic that way. Um, one is, I don't know if you've, uh, Petey by Ben McKelson. That is a good book. Fantastic book about a, a, a boy, a true story about a boy uh, in, with cerebral palsy and the horrible life he lived because this was back before we had the kind of care that we have now. And uh, But then he's befriended by, and in his older age, befriended by a young man and how this friendship blesses both of their lives. And uh, the, the boy ends up being the author who writes the book. You know, I think that's a fantastic book. There's things like The Circuit by Francisco Jimenez, mm. and he's got some sequels to that book as well about his life as an immigrant child, uh, you know, working on uh, the farms in California and what that did for him, how how it made it difficult for him to progress in school, but how he was over, able to overcome that. I think it gives you great empathy for the uh, some of those challenges that those immigrant families struggle with as they come you know, into the United States. Um, books like Rain, Rain by Ann Martin. One of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> about uh, a child with Asperger's. You know, really cute. Gets into the head of, of what it's like to, to live with Asperger's. And, uh, you know, maybe another one, A Homeless Bird by Gloria Whelan.
1: Again, all of my favorites.
3: <laughs> <laughs> fantastic book. Your favorite because not only do these teach empathy for children, but they're just fantastic, interesting books. Uh, this one, Homeless Bird, about a, a young bride in India, I believe, 11 or 12, and, and, then, and then quickly divorced, uh, not divorced, but widowed because her husband dies, and, this, and the challenges that she faces as this young widow in an Indian society. So these kinds of books, I mean, open up a new, a new perspective and paradigm to children that they wouldn't have otherwise. And my children have loved these books, and um, I feel like they can do quite a lot for promoting empathy.
1: And I think that's a place to start, right? If you start with that kind of empathy and seeing other people, then this whole design thinking process is able to, to build and go forward and, and really prepare them for the kinds of things that they'll be, need to be doing long term. So great way to start. Thank you so much, Rick, for sharing with us today about the intricacies of this new concept for many, design thinking. Thank you. Dr.
0: Richard West, discussing design thinking a process of creating a product or service that begins with walking in your customer's shoes. Finally, let's hear about kids' books from the kids themselves. Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting team asked a group about their interactions with reading, starting with their all-time favorite books.
1: What is one of your favorite books and why?
0: Um, I like a book named Amulet just because it's all like action, graphic novel. I like because of one deep. I like Harry Potter.
1: Me too. Why? What's what's your favorite part about Harry Potter?
0: Uh, I don't know all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I like Candy Shop War because it's kind of fun and there's different like it kind of twists a couple times in it. My favorite book is Far World and that's hard to say because I have problems, but um because it's about aven- adventures that People can't see, but so somehow Sophia can. And I like Dork Diaries because it's sort of funny. I like James and the Giant Peach because um, I just think it's cool that he gets to see like all the bugs and the big peaches and things and all the things he does.
1: What makes reading fun? Sell me on reading. So I let's say I'm your friend and I think reading's boring. Why would I want to read?
0: There's not just one book that you have to like. But there's multiple choices that you could find, and one of them might be the one that you like. Because, well, you can learn different things from different books, and in chapter book you can imagine all the things that are going on. Like, so when you end a series, you're like, oh, man. So then you can just get find a good series and be like, this is way better and stuff. <laughs> So, yeah. I would tell them it's full of mysteries and it
1: it depends. There's all kinds of books for different personalities and stuff. Because some books are like exciting and like twists and turns, and some books like leave you on the edge and then you have to get the other book to see what the ending is. They leave you on a cliffhanger, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I like it
0: because there's all different kinds of books, just not one choice to read from, like fantasy and novels. And I would probably say like, um, okay, you don't have to like reading; it's fine. But I will, I can say I don't like something like probably
1: like your math, for example. But if you, but deep inside, I know you like reading. It's just you don't want to say you do.
0: Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting team Talking to a group of kids About the books that they love Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting Tune in Saturdays at 1.30pm And weekdays at 8.30pm Eastern On BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel 143 On the TuneIn app And at byuradio.org